Welcome to the Help and Hope podcast produced by Mark Inc. Ministries. I'm Sharon Betters, the co-host of the podcast. And if you have been listening to this podcast for very long, you know that our vision at Mark Inc. is to offer help and hope, especially to hurting people. And one of the ways that we do that is to share redemption stories. We believe that the scriptures tell us to call back to those who are coming behind us and to remind them that our God is sovereign and we can trust him. And in each one of these stories, even though they are excruciatingly painful to hear sometimes, those who are hurting in a similar way will be encouraged and those who love them will be better equipped to come alongside of them. We cover topics from terminal illness to breast cancer, to caregiving, to sex trafficking, to adultery, you name it. I think that we have a story that will offer the help and hope of Jesus especially in these hurting places. Sometimes we have a story that is meant to be a building block in a person's life. For instance, we have included conversations with people who talk about the disciplines of grace, the power of prayer, the power of knowing what our identity in Christ is. All of these building blocks will help us face the different sorrows and hard places of life and so we're happy that today we are going to have a conversation between chuck betters my husband and also a host of the help and hope podcast and nick johnson nick and dr joel r beaky co-authored the book called pastors and their critics a guide to coping with criticism in the ministry And as a pastor's wife, my husband retired after 50 years of being a pastor. I know what it is to face criticism in the ministry. And frankly, I wish that we had had this kind of guidance many years ago when we were first starting out, because as you'll hear in this conversation, pastors don't take any classes in seminary on how to handle criticism or how to recognize whether the criticism is constructive or destructive and actually betrayal. And so in this part one of our conversation, you are going to hear how to determine whether or not criticism is destructive or constructive. And in part two, we are going to hear about how to create a climate where congregations and leadership feel comfortable in offering criticism that is constructive and that helps build up the ministry, helps have a correction for the pastor who is open and willing to hear it and to listen carefully rather than to immediately be defensive. So I think this is going to be a really helpful conversation, especially for young pastors. You know, pastors quickly learn that criticism comes with the territory of shepherding. And this conversation took place in the middle of the 2020 pandemic. And I don't know whether your pastor is one of those who is very weary from the constant criticism that they are getting in response to their handling of the pandemic, but there are many. And sadly, rather than resolve their differences, critics often choose to leave without any attempt to preserve the relationship. Most pastors give their lives to their congregations, but over time realize that what they thought were great friendships sometimes don't stand up in the middle of disagreements. And so in this conversation, you're going to hear two pastors talk about how to handle such hurt without making the situation worse? And what are some realistic expectations for conflict resolution? So pastor, are you hurting? 
This conversation will help guide you through the minefield of criticism. And now here's Chuck with Nick. Nick, thank you so much for being willing to do this. Uh, I see you're a graduate of Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary, and uh, you're pursuing ordination in the OPC, is that correct? That is correct. I'm actually ordained now. Congratulations, my friend. That's awesome. Great accomplishment. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about your life, your family, and um, what are the things that give you the greatest joy? So my family is one of the things that gives me the greatest joy, and I'm married to Tessa. Been married for about eight years, and we have three young boys. Cannon is seven, Owen is five, and Voss is one. That's awesome. Why did you write this book? I was working as a teaching assistant for Dr. Beakey while I was in seminary, and we had worked on a number of different writing projects together. And when he was preaching at John MacArthur's Shepherding Conference a couple years ago, uh, Dave from PNR Publishers approached him afterwards. He had preached a message on coping with criticism in the ministry. And Dave approached him and said, hey, I want you to turn that into a book. And Dr. Beakey had been wanting to do that for some time, sensing that there was a need for a more full-length treatment of the, the issues involved with criticism in the ministry. But he just hadn't had the time to do it yet. And so he approached me. I was fairly hesitant about it at first given the fact that I wasn't actually an ordained pastor and the fact that it was a book for pastors, but through his encouragement and PNR's encouragement, ended up having this amazing opportunity. Well, it's a book long overdue. I believe I've been in the ministry. Now, this is my 52nd year. I just retired from the pastoral ministry to devote more time to Mark Inc. Ministries. Over those 52 years, I have faced my share of criticism. As I said in the pre-interview with you, I think there is a sense in which men in the ministry don't know how to separate out the difference between destructive and constructive criticism. And more specifically, when and how does criticism become for the pastor a sense of betrayal? Yeah, I think you're you're absolutely right. It's so vital for us to learn how to discern the different types of verbal flack that we can receive in the ministry, the motives that are undergirding what people are saying about us and saying to us and how we ought to receive that. You know, it's interesting to me because I I have the privilege of talking to leaders from all over the country. And there is an epidemic of pastors who are leaving the ministry. They are walking away. And as uh, one man who's written over 60 books told me in one of my interviews with him, he said, the problem is we're losing the good ones. We're losing good, solid biblical teachers who are walking away from the ministry because they're disenchanted by the criticism. So let's start with that. You wrote a book. You guys co-authored this book, Pastors and Their Critics. Is that a given that pastors are always going to have critics? Yes, I I would say that it is. Now, I wouldn't say that pastors are always, uh, every day, 
all the time from every side going to be facing criticism. My limited experience has been that ministry is a mixture of compliments and criticism from my people. And I think God knows exactly what each man needs. Compliments, for me personally, are actually more dangerous than criticism, more dangerous to my my soul because of my tendency to be puffed up with pride. Uh, But it is a given that as we follow our Savior, as we seek to faithfully proclaim his word and shepherd his people and reach out to a lost world, that we are going to be attacked verbally and, um, and going to be facing hostility of, of different kinds. Do you distinguish between criticism and betrayal? Yes, I would distinguish between those two things because there, there are different types of criticism. And so, as I think you already mentioned here just a a moment ago, you have constructive criticism and destructive criticism. So someone, I just had someone yesterday approach me with uh, constructive criticism. They're a mature, godly saint. I I know that they love me. I know they have uh, my good in mind and the good of the church and the good of my future ministry. And, and so they're coming to me saying, look, I see this in your life, or I see this in your preaching, and I'm concerned. And they, they love me enough to, to speak to me. So that's not betrayal. But destructive criticism, criticism that comes with a malicious intent, with the intent, the intent of destroying the pastor's reputation or destroying his his work. It could be a betrayal if it's coming from um, someone that has uh, claimed to and given every appearance of being a friend and a fellow brother and sister in Christ. Sometimes it just comes from those who are clearly our enemies, and then it's not really betrayal either, I wouldn't say. Um, so there are some forms of destructive criticism that would take on the form of betrayal, but not all criticism is betrayal. You know, a lot of the book, which became a little frustrating for me because it was so convicting, (laughs) when you compare Jesus' response to his critics and the character and the nature of his humility and meekness and love toward the critic, my first human reaction my human flaw just screams out at me, but I'm not Jesus. Yeah. And there is a sense of justice that I want to see happen that isn't going to happen if I practice the form of humility that I hear you guys talking about in this book. Let me take you back, then ask you to respond to this. My very first criticism over 50 years ago is just as crystal clear to me today as it was then. It was my very first church. I was there for two weeks. And the church treasurer comes up to me. I had only met him one time thus far because I'd only been there for two weeks. And he says to me, and these are his exact words, you are young, impetuous, impulsive, and therefore controversial. 
and your only redeeming quality is your wife. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? That was my very first criticism in the ministry. Wow. I, I sat there with my mouth open, like, <laughs> what? <laughs> my only redeeming quality is my wife. Now, he's probably right. Uh, but when you, when you look back on it, here I am 50 plus years later, I can still see his face. Mm. I can still see where it happened, where it took place. I can almost smell his breath. Uh, it's, that, it's that real to me. For a young pastor to get that kind of attack from somebody he had never met before, did not even know, knew him, does damage. If you were counseling that young man who was devastated by those remarks, what would you say his re first response should be? That's a great question and a difficult question. <laughs> uh, I think given what you had previously said about Christ, that would be a, a wonderful place to begin by appointing this young pastor to Jesus. And clearly Jesus's suffering is unique as he is the, the federal representative of a new humanity. So we don't suffer in the exact same way that Jesus does, but as his followers, we ought to expect to share in his sufferings. And if they called our master demon-possessed, uh, we should expect them to call us demon-possessed. If they opposed him, we should expect them to oppose us. And, uh, and so really, so much of handling criticism rightly, just like so much, really, the, the whole of our sanctification, we could say, is summarized in looking onto Jesus, keeping, keeping your eyes fixed upon, upon Jesus. And so I might begin there. I think so much of, of our book, especially as I've, I've stepped back and, uh, and thought about it since it's been published, and now that I'm, I'm in the ministry, I've just come to realize that so much of our book and so much of uh, coping with criticism rightly comes down to our identity and uh, and how and where we are drawing our identity from. And that goes back to Christ and that goes back to the gospel and why the gospel is so essential. Because I, as a young pastor, you, Chuck, as a, a retired pastor, we need to be finding our identity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I, I would encourage that young man, I would encourage every pastor to be seeking daily and even hourly to be rooting his identity in Jesus Christ. So I have a little short, concise, one-sentence summary of who I am in Christ that I repeat to myself all throughout the day. And, uh, and it is this, I'm an eternally loved son of God justified and sanctified in Christ Jesus to the praise of my Father's glory. And that is so important for me to be continually reminding myself of that in the face of criticism, in the face of compliments, in the face of whatever I'm doing, because I'm so prone to find my identity horizontally rather than vertically. So prone to find my identity in what people think of me and how they perceive my preaching, or my writing, or my whatever, 
And, uh, and so when they compliment me, man, I have just this great sense of superiority and I'm puffed up. And when they criticize me, I'm, I'm beat down and, and prone to despair because my identity is rooted in them and in what they think. I'm a man-fearer by nature. And what the gospel does is it frees me from the fear of man because it says that ultimately my sense of worth, my sense of identity, my sense of purpose is not found in what you think about me or even in what I think about myself. It's found in what God says about me in his word and specifically in the gospel. So I, I think I would encourage the young pastor as I'm constantly preaching to my own self to look to Jesus and to reckon with the truths of who he is in Christ. Can that not eventually be perceived by the critic as it doesn't matter what I say to him, he doesn't care because he's so caught up in his own little world of identity. He doesn't really hear my criticism. He's not interested in what I say because he's so focused on his love for Jesus and Jesus' love for him, he's of, of no earthly good to me. Well, I would say if that's happening, that you're missing something because when we're really finding our identity in Christ and when we're really loving Christ, it's going to evidence itself. Faith works by love mm -hmm. and uh, love is the fulfilling of the law. And so where I'm really exercising faith in Christ, it's going to evidence itself in a genuine love towards those around me, especially the sheep that God has entrusted to my care. So I'm not saying, oh, I find my identity in Christ, therefore it doesn't matter at all what you're saying. But what I'm saying is I find my identity in Christ and therefore I'm not devastated by your criticism, nor am I unduly puffed up by your compliments. And therefore, because I'm freed from the fear of you, I can actually love you and I can actually listen and I can actually receive what you're saying because my identity isn't wrapped up in you. You know, it's interesting. You might want to know this as an author, that me as a reader, there's one passage in your book that I take away from the book as this is the most meaningful passage for me. It's on page 57 in the book where you quote Spurgeon and you say, Spurgeon remarks, quote, brother, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him for you are worse than he thinks you to be. If he charges you falsely on some point, yet be satisfied for if he knew you better, he might change the accusation and you would be no gainer by the correction. If you have your moral portrait painted and it is ugly, be satisfied for it only needs a few blacker touches and it would still be still nearer to the truth. That's convicting. When you guys wrote that passage and had that quote from Spurgeon, I read it as if they really knew who I was, if they really knew my character, what sin I am capable of, they would be much harsher in their criticisms toward me. Is that what you meant to say? Yes, and I think that's what Spurgeon meant to say as well. I just want to 
say that when I read that passage, it was it was extremely convicting in my own heart, because I think I'm not more unusual than any of them. When we all cry for a sense of justice, when we are harshly criticized, and may I add to that, by friends, by people who we've established long-lasting, lifelong friendships with, who come, it seems like, out of nowhere to blast us, to lay us bare, to do what that treasurer did to me early on in the ministry, to cut us down to size. And it can be very self-defeating if we're not careful. Would you agree with that? I would completely agree with that, yeah. And I I think that's, again, where it comes back to uh, rooting our identity in Christ. Uh, when, when we recognize the sinfulness of our own sin, uh, so much of the perceived injustice with regards to criticism coming our way is that we actually think that, and, and I fall prey to this uh, every day, uh, we think we're far better than we actually are, far more holy than we actually are, far more godly than we actually are, and we don't recognize the insanity of of pride and and sin that uh, still yet remains in in our hearts. And the more that we come to see that in the light of God's holiness, as as we're seeing God, so we're we're growing in the fear of God. Uh, we're going to grow in humility. That means that we're going to understand ourselves rightly in the light of who God is. And and the more that that happens, the more we're going to reckon with our own sinfulness, which I think is freeing in the face of criticism. One, because it drives us to Christ, but two, because as Spurgeon says more eloquently than Dr. Beeky and I could, it reminds us that you, Chuck, can't say anything about me that's really as bad as I really am if God were to just leave me to myself. You know, you have people, pastors, who have established deep friendships over the course of time with individuals who just out of nowhere just suddenly decide that an issue in the church is worth pursuing. And you as the pastor sit there and you think, this is no big deal. Why are you making such a big deal out of it? And from that discussion, criticism occurs to the point that people you consider to be some of your closest friends leave the church over it. They walk away. And then when they see you out in public, they'll walk on the other side of the street. They will not check in on you, see how you're doing. These are people that, you know, in my particular case, I remember people with whom personally I led to Christ. They had Thanksgiving dinner at my table. Their children became friends of my children, only to see them walk away over criticisms that I didn't consider to be worth it. Now, I know that's being repeated a hundred times every day with other pastors who maybe aren't as experienced in handling the grief of criticism than I am because I've had so much of it over my career. And you wrote in the back of the book, you wrote a separate invitation, so to speak, to seminary graduates, to guys who are just starting out in ministry. What did you hope to accomplish by that? And can it protect them uh, from the kind of disappointment when people start leaving their churches 
over issues that don't seem to matter at all. Yeah, I wrote that appendix uh, out of a burden to help men that, like myself, because I was in seminary when I, I wrote it. I was in my final year working on my MDiv, and I recognized that, and this was one of the burdens of the whole book itself, that seminaries just in general, I don't think, are doing a great job at preparing men for the criticism that they will face, not from the world out there. I think we all recognize, like, okay, the world's going to hate us, they're going to revile us, but what we don't recognize as guys in seminary is that actually our own sheep are going to be some of our greatest critics. And the, the tendency in seminary, for me at least, and uh, talking to a number of uh, brothers, I know that it's a common tendency is to think, okay, yeah, that might happen to this pastor and this pastor, but that's definitely not going to happen to me. I mean, I'm, I'm a really great preacher and I'm, I'm really gifted here and there and they're, they're going to love me. And, uh, and so you have, you can have an overly optimistic and an unrealistic view of ministry that can be devastating when you enter into ministry. And like, like you experienced within two weeks, you're having rather heavy punches thrown at you and you have not been trained to know how to respond. And uh, so, so that was, that was my burden in writing the appendix. And, and as I considered my time in seminary, I realized that seminary is, it's an ideal training ground to be uh, preparing to face criticism and to be learning how to receive criticism. And so I, in the appendix, just gave uh, 10, well, 10 things not to do, essentially, in order to be equipped to uh, receive the, the fires of criticism when in the ministry. And I, I think it's vital that men are preparing for those things prior to coming into the ministry. And what I've, what I've found personally, because I've already received my fair share of criticism. I've had a family that had grown very dear, even just over a short couple of months, do something very similar to what you described and leave the church. No longer will will talk to me or uh, or anyone in the church. And it was very, very difficult to to work through those things and and difficult to understand because all of us have different sin struggles. So I personally, I have my, my own sin struggles, but bitterness, unforgiveness, resentment, those are not things that are besetting sins for me. I still have to be watchful of my own heart. But when I come into what I realized as I was seeking reconciliation between these two families a couple months ago, and it, it went completely haywire, what I realized was I assume that everybody has the same sin struggles as me and that nobody is, is going to respond in this way or that way in this kind of situation because I wouldn't respond that way. But the reality is that these people don't struggle with the sins that I struggle with. Their, their struggle is with bitterness and with unforgiveness. 
And, uh, and so what seems like a real easy thing that we can just solve over a conversation together and some prayer ends up blowing up to the point of a family leaving who I believe are genuine believers. Like, how, how does that happen? Well, it happens because we're, we're sinful. And so we, we have to be watchful of our hearts and so I'm t- trying to tie up your your question, everything that that you said there. But yeah, I would I would say that in seminary we should be seeking to cultivate a realistic understanding of who we are and of uh, and of what the church is in this present age, and that that will go a long way towards learning how to deal with criticism and conflict in the ministry. How do you? cultivate in a local church in an atmosphere where people feel free to criticize in a God-honoring way the pastor? And how does the pastor promote that kind of environment for people to feel free to uh, criticize his work, his ministry, his words, his sermons? in a God-honoring way. How do, how do you create that atmosphere in the local church, both for the pastor and for the sheep? Thank you so much, Chuck and Nick, for this conversation. And Chuck, for that question that I think is so important. How do we create a climate? How do pastors create a climate in their congregation where people know that they have the freedom to share suggestions or course corrections with their pastor, that they share it within the context of encouragement, hopefully, and that they're not afraid to offer those constructive criticisms. And so in part two, Chuck and Nick are going to continue this conversation about pastors and their critics and how to navigate the maze of criticism in the ministry. I'm Sharon Batters. Thank you so much for joining us. And you can find part two at markinc.org, M-A-R-K-I-N-C.org.